these bad people made John so mad. He was so frustrated. Good morning, Crossroads. Uh-huh. Well, let, let me get this out of the way. OH. Yeah, yeah, I figured. Uh... So here's what happened this week. I, I made a mistake of putting something on social media. And, and I said, if, if I got my Maryland gear ready, and when I said that, I was thinking about basketball season, because we're a basketball school, and I have my Maryland gear all out ready for, uh, for basketball season, and all of a sudden, on social media, it just kind of blew up, and everybody's like, well, if Ohio State wins, you got to wear Ohio State jersey, and if Maryland wins, you wear your Maryland jersey. And uh, so I've got the Ohio State Buckeyes jersey on, you can see here. Um, but can I tell you, I'm wearing this on the outside, but I'm pretty happy on the inside. I mean, all the staff were texting me and going like, hey, you're going to get beat by 50. Should we spot you 50 points? And, and, and somebody even said, maybe Maryland might not come out of the locker room at halftime. I'm getting the last laugh on this one, so we're pretty happy. What a great game, great time together. Hey, I want to take a moment just to, to introduce you. My mom is here, and I tell a lot of stories about my mom. And I'm going to ask my mom, would you stand up, mom? Yeah, please stand up. Um, and uh, ask my mom. I just wanted to... I tell a lot of stories about her, so I wanted to introduce her. They're here visiting from Maryland, and we were watching that game with great delight and joy. Mom, I hope I have not brought shame to your name by wearing this jersey. Um, and I will tell you, those of you sitting around her, uh, better behave, because uh, it's Mama Vance, and I'm telling you. Hey, you know, we just sang this great song, and, and, and I don't want to distract from the beauty and importance of that. You know, for thousands of years, we have tried to put human words to God. Words like awesome, indescribable, grace, and mercy. You know, really, human words can't define God. God is so magnificent and so big and so immense and so amazing that our human words can't even match up. And so we use words that kind of bring shock to us, like words like reckless. We would look at that and say, well, God's love isn't reckless, it's perfectly planned. But in some ways, when you look at it from a human perspective, it's the only word you can use is it's ridiculous, it's reckless that God, the God of the universe, creator of all, would go to a cross on our behalf and pay the debt we owe. I mean, what word do you use? Any word you use doesn't fit, it doesn't work. It's not a big enough. And so I love that song because there's a description that we just can't imagine. Like it doesn't fit hum human logic. It's undescribable, it's reckless in our view. It's, it's amazing and awesome, and that's the God we serve. What an amazing God it is. If you want to take your Bibles out with me here this morning and turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, there is one under the seat in front of you. If you turn with us to page 775, Jonah chapter 4, page 775. As you turn there, we have a team that just returned yesterday from North Carolina. They've been working with disaster relief because of the hurricanes, and uh, we had a group of 15 that went at last minute and took a team there. Uh, amazing team. Thank you those who went. I know they came back with great stories, uh, prayers with many people, Bibles handed out. We're able to share the gospel with multiple people. So thank you uh, to that team that went in partnership with Samaritan's Purse to represent 
Christ and also represent Crossroads. Thank you for your impact there in North Carolina. We're in a series through this small yet power-packed book, the book of Jonah. Jonah is 48 verses, four chapters, and yet in it, we see the story really of our lives. What I love about this book, what I love about the book of Jonah, is that it really connects to each of us here. Because all of us understand failure. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your story, all of us get failure. We've all failed in some form, in some fashion, in some way in the past. And what Jonah tells us is that failure is not a person, failure is an event. See, that there's a big difference between failing and failure. See, we see a prophet of God running from the call of God, running from God himself. God comes to the prophet Jonah, a well-known, well-respected prophet, and says, go to Nineveh, call out against it. Nineveh was the biggest, baddest city of the day. It was the arch enemy of Israel. It was a metropolitan. It was one of the largest metropolitan in that history. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go, as a prophet of Israel, I want you to go there and I want you to call out against Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't go. No, Jonah runs and he heads to a little town called Joppa and gets on a boat to head to a city called Tarshish. Tarshish is 2,500 miles away in the opposite direction across the Mediterranean Sea. He gets in that boat and he believes he is running from God. He finds himself in the bottom of that boat asleep and God goes after him. I love this. God doesn't leave him as a failure. God goes after him and we find a storm coming on the sea. The sailors come to know this covenant creator God, but Jonah is left being thrown overboard, and he finds himself in the belly of a great fish. Some believe it was a humpback whale, others believe it was a great white shark. I actually believe that the fish was a Mediterranean tuna, the chicken of the sea. There's actually a documented case of a man who lived for a day in the belly of a Mediterranean tuna. Mediterranean tunas are huge, and they have a, a capsule in them where someone could live and survive because there's oxygen that flows through there. And so I actually believe he was in the belly of a Mediterranean tuna. Uh, you can go look that up. There's not much reporting on that, but that's my take on it. But in the belly of that fish, God breaks Jonah down, and his brokenness leads to his usefulness because he comes out of chapter 2 to chapter 3, and he goes to Nineveh, and he makes this declaration, in 40 days, Nineveh, you're going to fall. What happens? Last week we looked at the fact that not only does Jonah change, but Nineveh changes. And we find the repentance of Nineveh from the, from the king to the commoner. Nineveh repents. The, the city turns upside down. And we see one of the greatest revivals in human history happen in this big bad city of Nineveh. We, we find God humbling this, this violent, arrogant city. We, we find God resurrecting a spiritually dead city one of the biggest metropolises in the world today. You would think in this moment that Jonah would be having a party. I mean, he had just been part of a historical moment in history. Nineveh turns around. What I love about Jonah is this, that this story really abundantly proves to us that it's not our initial failure that ruins us. It's actually what happens next. What happens next in our lives after failure? is really what proves who we are. You know, one of the curses of growing up in a, in a pastor's home is you get quizzed on Bible knowledge. And so when we sit at the kitchen table or we sit in the living room, 
somewhere we'll get into some theological discussions. And, and because being a pastor, my boys, my four sons, I feel like they have to know what the Bible says. Because if they don't, it's a little bit of an embarrassment to me, right? If they come here and they didn't know something. I, and so there's a little pressure in that way. And, and so I'll quiz them every once in a while. Well, what about this character? Tell me about him. And, and about, about five years ago, I was having this conversation about Jonah. I was doing a study through Jonah, and uh, we were talking about Jonah. And I got to this point, and I said, well, guys, you, you've heard the story of Jonah. We talked about the story of Jonah. How do you think Jonah ends? And my youngest son, Isaac, who at the time was about eight years old, speaks up with great bravado, and he says, well, I know what happens. They live happily ever after. Oh, how I wish that was true. If Jonah ended in chapter 3, we have one of the greatest revivals in human history happening. We have Jonah the prophet who was reluctant becoming an obedient evangelist. But it doesn't end in chapter 3. We come to chapter 4, and chapter 4 makes this moment greatly awkward. What we're going to find is God is not done in Jonah's life. See, this whole book has not been about just saving Nineveh. This whole book has been about saving the prophet, the people of God, the person of God, the one who's called by God. This is all about the heart of Jonah, and chapter 4 proves this to us. And you know what? Can I tell you, honestly, this morning, I find great delight in this. You know why? Because I feel like Jonah sometimes. Sometimes my faith is strong. It feels impenetrable. It's like a pillar that isn't movable. But then other times, my, way, my faith feels weak. It feels like a styrofoam cup in the middle of the ocean in the midst of a hurricane, just tossed by the circumstances of life. Anybody else ever feel that way? That's Jonah. I get this. I feel this with Jonah. We find in Jonah this work of God in the midst of these circumstances. God is going to touch his faith. Now, before we go any further, as we dive into Jonah chapter 4, I want to begin by asking this question, because this is going to set up this chapter for us. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever been angry with God? Now, I know for some of you, you hear that, and you're like, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Am I allowed to say I'm angry with God? Like, that's kind of sacrilegious. And so maybe we're a little bit more spiritual than that, so we won't say we're angry with God, but maybe you felt frustration with God. You ever felt frustration with God? Like maybe for you, there was something you think you need in your life, and God's not bringing it to you. God's not giving it to you. And you're like, God, I really need this in my life. Why aren't you providing it? I'm praying to you. I'm seeking you. And you're wondering, where is it coming from? And it just seems like God is silent. Maybe for you, you're looking for your spouse. Maybe you're, looking for a, you're having, trying to have a child together as a couple. Maybe there's a job, a promotion that you're expecting in your job, or there's a financial situation you're just asking God to provide for, and it just seems like God isn't doing it. Maybe it's a dream you had as a, as a young person, and that hasn't come to fruition, and you're just like, God, when is this going to come? When is life going to bring it back? Maybe for some of us, it's not what we believe we need. It's something we have that we don't want. Maybe you're in a difficult situation and you just wish there was a way of escape. Maybe right now you're in a difficult family situation and you're like, God, I just wish I could run away. I just wish I could get out. Why can't this be easier? Maybe for you it's a job that you feel stuck in and you just wish that God would relieve you. Maybe for some, it's the loss of something. Or even worse, someone. And you're saying, God, why? I'm frustrated with you. I remember my first funeral that I officiated. 
I was 20 years old. I was new to ministry. I just finished an internship, and I was, was brought on as a full-time intern before I took a position as a children's pastor in a church in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and while I was there, uh, this, this moment happened. It was a friend of a family in our church. Uh, they had a death in the family. And all the pastors were gone to a conference, and I was left. And so they came to me and said, Dave, we know that you've been an intern, but we trust you. Uh, we're gonna, we want you to do this funeral. So they said, go meet with the family, find out what's going on, and just you know, give them scripture and hope, and, and then pr- preach the gospel at the funeral. And that's what you do. And so I, I went to this, uh, this home where the family was, and I walked in, and I could tell just they, they were overwhelmed and in, in, in distressed. They were distraught over whatever had happened. And so I began to talk with them. And I learned the context very quickly. It was, a, it was a family who had a four-year-old girl who was killed by her grandmother. Now, I had no clue walking in there that was the case. I go in and begin to meet with them and talk with them. And I hear this, there's a bit of angst in me that's angry toward God. How could God allow this? How could God accept this? How could God allow this grandmother to do this? And, and I was called to bring hope in that situation, to bring healing in that situation, to proclaim good news in the midst of a moment of great question. They looked at me, they were like, Pastor Dave, give us some hope. Give us some hope. Why would God do this? And I remember getting in my car, and I was frustrated with God. God, what kind of God are you to allow this? In fact, I was angry. I led them through this moment and tried to be the best I could in presenting the gospel and giving hope and the message of Jesus in the midst of loss. But man, there was no answer to those questions. It was trust God in the midst of it. Here we're going to see a moment where the lens goes to Jonah's heart. We're going to see the, the core of Jonah's heart. And we're going to find that he's angry. We're going to find that he's frustrated with God. By the way, you don't need any circumstance in your life to see this, do you? Read the paper every morning. Turn the news on. You want to get frustration? You wonder, God, what are you doing? I mean, are you still here, God? Are you see what's happening around the world and deaths and these different things? There can be frustration that builds up in our lives. How do we respond to those frustrating moments? Take a look with me, Jonah chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Jonah is going to give us a picture of how you and I respond and what God says. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to, to die than even to live. And the Lord responded and said, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? I want to look at this from a few different perspectives. First of all, we find Jonah giving an angry response. This is number one, an angry response. Jonah is angry. He's angry at God. I love the way one author puts this. This is uh, author Judson Mather. He wrote a book called The Comic Act of the Book of Jonah. And he writes a very unique perspective of Jonah, but he writes this, very interesting. He says, life for Jonah up until this point was a series of disconcerting surprises and frustrations. He tries to escape from God, and God traps him. He then gives up and accepts the inevitability inevitable, and I can't say it, of dying, and then he's saved. 
He obeys when he is given a second chance and is frustratingly, embarrassingly successful, and then he decides to blow up. I love that picture. Here he is, he's running from God, God rescues him. He gets thrown overboard. He thinks he's gonna die, it's over. God saves him. He goes to Nineveh, and then he's successful, and now he finally lets it all out and he blows up. In fact, take a look at verse, verse one there in chapter four. It's pretty telling. The Hebrew really gives a deep meaning to this. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Very interesting word that's repeated multiple times in verse one. It's the word displeased and the word exceedingly. It's the Hebrew word ra'ah. And what ra'ah means is evil. Here, Jonah is calling out God for being evil. In fact, if I were translating this to, to help us understand it, it would actually be translated, it was evil to Jonah in the most evil way. Literally, that's what it's saying. It was evil in the most evil way. It was evil to Jonah. Now, this word evil has shown up multiple times throughout this book. In chapter one, remember, it says the evil of Nineveh came to the mind of God. It says that God saw, he perceived their evil. We then find in chapter three that Nineveh turns from their evil, and now we have Jonah accusing God of being evil. He's coming to God in frustration. He says, God, I believe you have been evil to save the Ninevites, this wicked pagan heathen nation, that the enemy of your people, and yet you forgave them. And I'm angry, and I believe it's evil, it's unjust. Here we find Jonah revealing how he feels. Notice, by the way, the word angry. Uh, in, in Hebrew, the word angry is an idiom. It's, it's a word, kara, and it literally means nostril burning. You know why? Because what happens when you're angry? Don't your nostrils flare? When someone gets angry, their nostrils grow out. They, they, they kind of get bull-like, right? That's the image. It literally means nostril flare. Here, it says he's angry. The nostrils of Jonah are flaring, and notice who they're flaring against. Not Nineveh, not himself, not the sailors. They're against God. He is angry with God. Now, you might ask why. Well, Jonah gives us the answer, doesn't he? Some will say, well, maybe he felt like a false prophet because he went there and said Nineveh was going to fall, and they, they didn't fall. They relented and repented, and God relented. And, and some will say maybe he was uh, embarrassed, and he thought maybe that he was a traitor because he was of the, working for the arch enemy of Israel. But Jonah tells us why he is angry. Take a look at what it says, verse 2. It says, he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I I fleed from you, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, God, I know your character. And that character runs against my feelings, and so I'm angry at you, God. This is what I think should happen, and it didn't happen. Therefore, I'm angry. Now, it would be easy to judge Jonah in this moment, wouldn't it? And how dare he? But we all have these emotions at times. We're emotional people. We're, we're born with these emotions. In fact, I would dare say they're God-given. In fact, I, I would say emotions are amoral. Emotions are amoral. They're not right or wrong. They're, 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 they're who we are, right? And those emotions play out. But can I tell you about them? They're not just amoral in the sense they're not right or wrong, emotions in and of themselves. They're actually quite organized. What do I mean? That's kind of weird to say because a lot of people's emotions are out of control. What do you mean by organized? Well, think about this for a moment. You can't go to your house 
and sit in your living room this afternoon and go, I'm going to be angry. Now, I would dare you to try. It'd be fun. Make sure you videotape yourself and post on social media when you do it. But you can't go home and go, I'm angry, and be angry. You need something to make you angry. And some of you are going to watch the Browns game, and you're, oh, they're going to buy this week, so you're not going to be angry today. You can't go home and say, I'm going to be sad. It doesn't happen. You can't just be angry and be sad. There's always something that creates anger and sad feelings, whatever that feeling may be. It's amoral. It's, it's organized. But what gets us isn't the feeling. What gets us is the response we give to the emotion. So we feel anger. We feel frustration. What gets us isn't the feeling because that's not wrong. The emotion is not wrong. What's wrong is the response to that emotion. So we're angry, how do we respond? So feelings, I would say it this way, feelings have to be experienced and expressed in order to be processed. Feelings have to be experienced and expressed in order to be processed. Now people do this in many different ways. There are some people, they have a feeling of anger and their initial reaction is to deny it. I'm not angry. By the way, you ever walk up to somebody who you know is angry, you can see their nostrils burning, and you go, you angry, bro? Like the internet meme, you angry, bro? You angry, bro? And they go, I'm not angry. (laughs) Maybe your spouse has done that to you before. And you're like, you just proved you're angry. There are some that deny their feelings. The problem is eventually they're going to come out, right? There are some that hide those feelings. They they put them down in the pit, and they kind of hide them underneath. And what happens is it's a proverbial jack-in-the-box is eventually a circumstance happens, and all of that junk that's in begins to come out. They they cover it up, but eventually it's like the old African proverb. It says, uh, whatever fills a man will spill when he is bumped. Something bumps into him, and all of a sudden what's deep in the heart begins to come out in rage. There are others of us, we say, you know what, I'm not going to hide, I'm not going to deny them. I'm just going to live them out, I'm going to wear my heart on my sleeve, which is an excuse to act whatever way we want, right? And so we have these emotions, and like pinball, it goes up and down, and one moment we're sad, and the next moment we're mad, and the next moment we're happy, and and what happens is everybody around you walks on eggshells. Is this a good day or a bad day? I, I wonder if they... Right? And, and, and so slowly what happens is like pinball could go and change any moment. One moment of the day it's happy and the next moment of the day it's sad. The next moment of the day it's angry. And so it's, it's kind of human pinball. I want you to see what Jonah does. This is eye-opening. Jonah does none of these things. What does Jonah do? Notice verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. Notice how Jonah deals with these feelings. He expresses them by taking them to the right source. An angry response leads to an honest prayer. That's the second point. We find in Jonah an honest prayer. He goes directly to the Lord. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't hide them. He doesn't let them just play out. He goes directly to the Lord. This is the second prayer in the book of Jonah. The first prayer happened in Jonah chapter 2 in the belly of the fish. Uh, or Jonah chapter 3, in the belly of the fish. That was chapter 2. He has the first prayer, God, rescue me. Now we find his second prayer, and this time he's telling God how he feels. He's frustrated with God. In the belly of the fish, he cries out and says, God, rescue me. And now he's saying, God, how could you rescue them? 
he goes to the Lord with an honest prayer. Now, what I love about prayer is that God here doesn't scorn him for the way he feels. God doesn't say, Jonah, how dare you feel that way? He doesn't scorn him. He doesn't, he doesn't cast him aside. God, with great grace, reaches out in this moment. But, but I want you to notice something. Prayer opens a window to our hearts. See, how we pray reveals what we really think about the situation. What we find here in Jonah is what he is going to pray is going to reveal that he's tainted. That his prayer is actually going to reveal that he's got, got a little bit of an issue inside, that he's got some back poison that still remains in his heart, some, some plaque that still is breaking up his, his spiritual coronaries. Let me show you what I mean. Notice, notice the personal pronouns here. These are eye-opening with the verbs. They stand out in the Hebrew text. In fact, if you'd like to underline, underline them. This gives us the insight into what Jonah's thinking. Take a look at what he says. It says, verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said? You ever have your kids say that to you? I told you so. Um, I tell you, in, in our house, we don't allow that, right? You can't say, like, you have respect for each other. It's one of our core values as a family. But um, I remember I went through a stage as a teenager where I liked to challenge my, my dear, sweet mom. And I remember there were times where she would ask me to do something. I'd say, Mom, it's not going to work. I, ca I can't do that. She goes, no, 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 you're going to do it. I'm asking you to do it. And I would go do it, and it didn't work like I was right. And I would go back to her, and I'd go, see, Mom? You are wrong. You have no clue. See, I told you this. I told you so. And there was something about Mama, Mama Vance. There was, she's the sweetest old lady you'd ever meet. And then all of a sudden, this monster would rage out of her when I would talk to her like that, right? You don't tell Mom how it is. And I said, well, that's how it is, Mom. And there was this, this monster rage out of her, and all of a sudden, psh, and you let your imagining, psh, whatever that means. And I would drop to my knees. And I would know, and by the way, my friends knew if they come to the house, man, Mama Vance is the sweetest lady in the world. Don't cross her. I'm sitting, I'm standing here in fear today, still. <laughs> Can you imagine Jonah saying to God, God, I told you. God, I predicted you. I knew you were going to do this, God. He kind of is saying, God, I, I knew it better than you. That's why I told you. Notice what he says next. He says, that's why, and notice the personal pronoun, I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why I made haste. I, there it is again, personal pronoun, I. I ran from you. I ran because I knew you were going to do this. By the way, very interesting. We don't have time to dig into it, but the word uh, I ran, I, I made haste. It's actually the Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrew phrase here is kadamti uh, libroach. Uh, and what it means is to run before. And I think that's pretty telling. You know why? Because when we run from God, what are we actually saying? I'm going to run ahead of God. I'm going to run before God. God, I got this. I'm in control. I take the wheel. I'm going to go my direction. So he's speaking here, and he says, I'm going to run before you, God. This is why I went ahead of you. This is why I tried to escape, because I knew what you were going to do. Notice the next pronoun. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, I knew your character, God. Now I want to pause here for a moment because it would be easy to look at this phrase, one of the most beautiful descriptions of God anywhere in the scripture, and think how could Jonah say this 
and yet run from God? How could Jonah say this and be angry at God? If this is true about God, how can you be angry with him? Well, this is not Jonah's expression, actually. In fact, what Jonah is doing, and this is slick, Jonah is telling God what God actually said about himself. You might say, where, where do I get that? Well, this, this phrase, this expression, began in Exodus chapter 32. Now, a quick up, update on the story, right? In, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel come out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses goes up to the mountain to get the two tablets of the law. God writes the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And while Moses is up there, God speaks out and says, Moses, I'm going to wipe those people out down there. They're they're making a golden calf. They're making a golden image. They're worshiping a false god. And so I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses responds and says, God, don't do that. Relent from that disaster. Don't start over. Remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know that God is testing Moses in that moment, and Moses answers the test. And so Moses heads back down, and when he comes on the mountain, remember the story? He sees the people worshiping the, the idol, and he takes the Ten Commandments and throws them down and breaks them. It says he then goes into what's called the Tent of Meeting. The Tent of Meeting. And, and what's interesting, this is before the tabernacle, before the temple, and he goes in this tent where he would meet with God. God would come in a pillar of fire or in a cloud and speak to Moses. And he spoke with, with God, and, and Moses said, God, I want, I want assurance you're not going to de- destroy us. I want assurance. And so God says, okay, I'll give you assurance. What do you want? And Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, you can't see my glory. Moses says, I I want to see your glory. And so God says, okay, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. Remember the story, Exodus 33. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and his glory passes by. And it says Moses sees the backside of God's glory, and his countenance is changed. He can't see God and live. He only sees a portion, a piece of it. And then it says Moses comes out and God calls him to go up to the mountain to make the Ten Commandments again. The first one's destroyed. Now Moses goes back up to the mountain. And here is the verse. Here it is. Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God speaking. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. In fact, I would say this phrase, this description of God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, becomes a creedal confession for the Israelites. Uh, Psalm 103, we see, it, we, we see it repeated. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It was like the Israelites began to say this as a description of their God. Here's who our God is. He, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we just say that line. They would teach it to their kids. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Here is Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, telling God what God spoke about himself. Saying, God, don't you know who you are? That's what he's actually saying to him. Don't you know what you described about yourself? That you're a God who is, who is abounding in steadfast love? Why would Jonah remind God of himself? Because Jonah is reminding God who he said it to. See, God didn't say it to Nineveh. God didn't say it to any empire of the world. God said it to the Israelites. 
He said it to Moses. And so Jonah is, is in some ways challenging God, saying, God, that doesn't apply to Nineveh. I think, I think Jonah is challenging God. God, that verse shouldn't apply to Nineveh. It only applies to your people. It only applies to us, we who are a part of your, your tribes. It doesn't apply to the world. And what Jonah is confronted with is God's grace, God's mercy. See, isn't this the character of God? Mercy and grace is a love that seeks us out even when we have nothing to give in return. Mercy and grace is a love that comes at you when you have nothing to do with it. Mercy and grace doesn't make any demands to give and here is Jonah saying there should be some demands. See, mercy and grace is limitless when it comes to God and yet here we find, here we find Jonah putting a limit to it saying this should not apply to the Ninevites. This should not apply to that wicked nation I don't like the way your grace intersects my life. Jonah here has perfect theology and yet is not submitting to the character of God. And notice where it leads him, what it leads him to say. Notice verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than live. He says, God, I would rather die than be in this spot. I would rather die. I'd rather be put to death. Just lay me down. Now, I've said to you before, I'm glad I'm not God. Because if I was God, think about this story. He runs, I go after him and rescue him. They throw him overboard, I rescue him and save him in the midst of, 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 of the belly of a fish. He goes to the city and preaches. Right now he should be having a party in the middle of Nineveh. Right, he's, he's a prophet of Israel who could have been put to death by this evil, wicked people, and yet he's alive. He should have been having a party in the middle of Nineveh. Now he's at the, the city gates pouting. If I was God in this moment, I'd be like, all right, Jonah, you're done. Zap, pow, boom. Over. I've been gracious to you. You did the work that I wanted you to do. I get the last word. Boom, you're done. But here is God extending grace to Jonah himself. We see an angry response. We see Jonah's heartfelt prayer, but then we see a gracious question. Number three, a gracious question. You want to talk about grace, this is where we see it, not just in the salvation of the Ninevites, but in the rescue of Jonah. Notice God asks a question, verse four, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry? Is it right for you to feel this way? Now I love this because all throughout the Bible, God asks questions. If you read the Bible and you look at where God speaks to people, often he asks questions. But his questions are not because God needs information. His questions are meant to get to the heart. Remember Judas in the garden? Judas, you betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. God knew it was coming. Jesus knew it was coming. Remember Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus knew why he was persecuting, but he was getting to the heart. Remember in the beginning in Genesis, where are you, Adam and Eve? Who told you you were naked? God knew full well. It's not a, not a matter of information. It was a matter of the heart. And so God here goes after the heart, the coronaries of the spiritual heart of Jonah, and says, do you have a right to be angry? Now as we end, I want to end with kind of four statements that give us a picture as to how we respond when those emotions run rampant. Number one, God's character will always be consistent even when we don't understand. 
God's character will be consistent even when we don't understand it. You know what, can I tell you, and this is a bold statement, but I actually believe God is a bit predictable. Now, I don't mean we always know what he's doing, but what I mean is we know his purpose. We know what he's going to do. The word of God gives us insight into the character of God so that God remains so consistent that I know when he's at work, he's going to fulfill his plan. I may not see it. There are circumstances orchestrated by God that I can't understand or see fully, but what I do know is God is gonna do what he's promised he's gonna do. His character is consistent. As a believer in Christ, I know that he's gonna conform me to the image of his son. I know that he's gonna make me more like Christ. You know what that means? No matter what I go through, I can bank my faith on the fact that he's gonna make me more like Jesus Christ. I know that he's gonna come again one day and he's gonna set up his kingdom. You know what that means? That means that when I read the news and I see what's happening even in our own country, yes, we should be active and we should do something about it, but the fact of it is, the United States will not be a kingdom that lasts forever. There will be one kingdom that lasts forever and his, the king will be Jesus Christ. I know that to be true. I can bank my faith on that. There's these things in scripture that we can bank our faith on where God is consistent. And so in difficult times, in questionable times, in frustrating times, I can say, God, I trust you because I know your character is consistent. Number two, our responses are a more accurate reflection of our hearts than mere activity. A lot of us think that spiritual maturity is based upon our obedience, and there is an element of that, right? If I do, I read my Bible, I pray, I come to church, I, I engage in community, these things are important. And they do reflect God. But can I tell you, I think our responses are even a greater indication of where our hearts are than just being active. Look at Jonah here. This prayer is an indication. We, we find him feeding self-pity. I, I, me, me. We find him exhausted in strength. He's given up. He should have a, have a party in the city, but he's exhausted in frustration. We see him fueling bitterness. God, take my life. I'm bitter. I don't know where to turn, and, and so I'm just asking you to take me home. I'm done. We find this bitterness building in him. See, we have insight by his responses to what he really believes. Although, by the way, he gets the character of God correct. I want to make a point with this. And this is key. Some of you, you've known Christ. Like me, I've known Christ for many, many years of my life. I was a, a young man when I came to know Jesus Christ. And, and you know what's interesting? I look back at my life, and there have been times where I think that biblical knowledge and biblical literacy equals spiritual maturity. Like if I just put this stuff in my head and I know this story, I know this verse, I memorize this, I get this, I'm faithful to read the word, I pray. Right? We, I just think if I do these things, then I must be spiritually mature. But you know what I find? Our theology, good theology, is not just what we think. Good theology is how we live. It's not just feed me more information so I get more and I know God's word more. It's, God, may I know your word so I may reflect you by my life through your word. See, good theology isn't just thinking. Good theology is living. That's why in communities we don't just say get information. We say engage with others so that you will live out good theology. Here is Jonah who is accidentally speaking who God is and yet his why and how don't match the what well God you're gracious and merciful slow to anger abounding in steadfast love but your why and how of life isn't matching it Jonah isn't saying God I'm, I'm going to be filled with joy because I know who you are in spite of the fact I disagree with you that leads to the third observation we may have reason to feel the way we do but not the right to react the way we do. Can I say, I say this to myself consistently. 
Dave, you may have a reason, but you don't have a right. There are times we have reasons to feel the way we do, but do we have the right to feel the way we do, to react the way we want? There, there may be in your life right now a reason to feel angry, right? It may be a marriage that's struggling. You feel angry about it. The question is, do you have a right then to walk away? You might have a family situation. You have a reason to be angry, but do you have a right to react the way you want to react? You might have a job situation that you just want to go into your boss's office and, and kind of give them the west side what's up thing. The question is, do you have the right to respond that way? See, when we ask the question, I have a reason, but what is my right? What I'm really saying is, God, give me boundaries so that I respond to reflect you, not just the way I want to. See, we have a reason to feel the way we do, but do we, do we have the right to react? And then lastly, when God's actions and our thoughts don't align, we can still worship with joy. Why? Because it's based upon what we know and believe about him. I can look back at my life, and I can know that Jesus came and died on a cross for me and walked out of a grave for me to save me, so that when something happens in my life and I feel angry, I can look back at that moment and say, God, you rescue me in this moment. I can trust you in this moment. I can be filled with joy in the midst of the circumstances. I can be overflowing with joy. Why? Because I've seen your faithfulness in the past. I've seen what you've done. I know who you are. In fact, can I say this? I, I think the more we dwell on the consistency of God's character, the more consistently his joy will overflow our lives. Why? Because... I, I know how good he is. Like, listen, if you're here this morning and your life is in shambles, but you know Jesus Christ, you've got the most important thing in your life figured out. You've got the most important thing in your life settled and secure. Man, your, your life feels like a rocky boat right now, but you know Christ. Think about it. You could be overwhelmed with joy in the midst of circumstance, as the scripture says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why? Because in the midst of it, I know something that's set in stone, and that is my faith. That is my salvation in Christ. That is the work that God is doing in me. That is the love and grace and mercy of God that is abounding and steadfast and overwhelming that continues to drive in my life. And so I can be overwhelmed with joy even when I don't know what's happening, when my thoughts and God's work don't align. Maybe you're here this morning and you're angry. You're frustrated. Where are you running to give the answer? There are some of you here this morning, you, you, you've been running from God and you're running from God because you've been angry with him. Maybe it's something that happened years ago in your life and, and you happen to come in here this morning, but you've been running, you've been running. You're like, I don't want anything to do with this God. I don't want anything to do with, with, with Christ. Do you do well to be angry? You want to know the stretch and width of God's love for you? All you have to do is look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. He came to rescue. And maybe the day would be the day of your salvation where you stop running and say, you know what? I feel angry, and I'm going to tell God I'm angry, but I'm going to trust his character. Maybe you're here and you know Christ, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you're here and you're walking in frustrating times in your life. Where are those emotions taking you? How are your responses? Those responses are an indication to your heart. It's an indication to your walk. How is your relationship with God? Do you do well to be angry? You might have a reason, but do you have a right? Let's stand together as we pray this morning. We're going to end with prayer and then this song that reminds us, for God so loved the world. 
That's a truth we can bank our lives on. For God so loved the world. God, I want to thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I need this reminder. Many times I, I feel like my faith is up and down, and one day I, I'm struggling, the next day I feel confident and secure, and the next day I feel like that, that paper cup in the ocean in the middle of a hurricane just tossed. And, and yet, God, you remain the same. Your word says you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can look at the past and see your faithfulness. We can look at the present and see your work. We can put our hope in the future that you will complete what you promised. And so, God, of all the people in this world, our faith should be steadied. Our joy should be overflowing. Our reactions should be different. And so, God, I pray in those moments where we feel emotion that we'll filter them through you. We'll filter them through you like Jonah. But, but God, that you would then expose the, the, the areas that are tainted in the corners of our spiritual heart so that we may be made whole and made new. That we may reflect you all the more. All for your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this song as we end this morning.